This morning, uh, we're going to dive into Matthew 22, and the, the beginning section here that I'm going to talk through is a little bit more maybe teachy than I'm used to doing, um, but I want to spend some time kind of breaking this down for us to understand what it is that's being said here in these five verses, six verses that we're going to start with. So turn with me to Matthew 22. We're going to be in verses 41, and then we're going to go into chapter 23 through verse 12 in chapter 23 this morning. It says this, Matthew 21, 22, 41 and 42. says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. Uh, he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but, do not, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move, move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Interesting passage. So go back to uh, chapter 22, verse 41 with me. It says, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So in chapter 22 uh, that we're wrapping up today, it, it records the, this onslaught that's sort of brought upon Jesus by these different religious factions, the, relig the religious elite of Jesus' day. And they each come to Jesus with a question that we've been going over these questions over the last few weeks. So question number one was a question about taxes. Question number two was a question about marriage and heaven. Question number three uh, which we saw last week, was about the greatest of all the commands. And then the, these people, the, these delegates, these elites, don't come to Jesus wanting to learn from Jesus, but they actually want to entangle Jesus, right? They, they want to catch him in his own words. And so now, as, as we look at this passage today, Jesus sort of turns the table, and Jesus asks a question of his own. He says in verse 42, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So the, this title Christ, to break this down for you, the title Christ, um, it's not Jesus' first and last name, right? Jesus Christ. This title Christ means anointed one. And in the Greek version uh, of the word, it, it's Messiah. or the, It's a Greek version of the word Messiah. And the Messiah is who the Jews knew would be the deliverer of God's people, that would rescue them. Messiah would be uh, the, the one that was chosen for the specific purpose of delivering God's people once and for all. 
But then after this question, Jesus sort of detours for a second, uh, and he goes into Psalm 110, which is interesting, and he quotes it, and Jesus says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And before we get into Psalm 110, I want to ask you a question. Like, why in the world would Jesus detour into Psalm 110? Like, why would Jesus go there? Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament. Um, Psalm 110 was written by David, uh, King David, the the one whose line the Messiah would actually come through. Uh, Jesus actually affirms that David was in the spirit when he wrote this psalm, meaning that that they they were spirit-inspired words, like as we believe all the words from Scripture are. But this means that David didn't just conjure this up, that it was the Spirit of God leading him to pen these words. And, And Psalm 110 is this messianic psalm of sorts. It's about the coming Messiah. And so go back to Jesus's question to the Pharisees. What he's saying is, hey, Pharisees, how is it that King David, in the Spirit, when writing about the Messiah, the one coming from his own line, refers to him as my Lord? Like, why would King David refer to anybody from his family tree that way? As most of you know, I have two sons. I love my sons. They're they're amazing kids. I'm proud of my sons. However, in spite of that, if you ever came to my house and and you heard one of my sons ask me to give them a ride to their friend's house, you would never hear me respond, yes, my Lord, right? Like, that just wouldn't (laughs) be how I'd respond to my kid. Yes, my Lord. Like, never. So why in the world does David respond like this? And I, I know the, the response that we'd probably give, well, well because the Messiah to come is, is more than a son. He's more than his son. He's the son of God. And, and I would agree with that. So what's the issue? And the issue is that Jesus' audience didn't believe that he would be. They didn't believe that. They, they believed that he would be great like King David was great. But they didn't believe that he would be literally God in the flesh. So what they thought about who Jesus was was actually sort of insufficient in what they thought of who this man was. They didn't have a category that would sort of allow them to see the Messiah as looking anything like Jesus looks. So they needed to sort of change their concept of who the Messiah would be because they're on the verge of rejecting the Messiah himself standing before them. And so what about us? Right? What do you think about the Christ? You, personally, what do you think about him? And this question doesn't just pertain to them, it pertains to you and I. This question is so important for us because faith in Christ has to actually be grounded in the fact that Jesus was a human being, that he walked this earth in the flesh. Like, if Jesus is in fact the Christ, then what you think about Jesus it is of eternal importance, how you, what you know of him, who is he actually. It's why we exist to make him known. And I want to go back to Psalm 110, and I, want, I don't want to spend a ton of time unpacking it all. I just want to spotlight a few things in there. If you read that whole chapter, chapter uh, Psalm 110, which Jesus only gives a, a couple verses from. But in Psalm 10, 110, verse 1, that Jesus is quoting, it says, The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So there, there's two things to note about this first verse. Is that one, we see the divinity 
of, of this Messiah, right? And we also see the authority that this Messiah has. Like everybody assumed that the, the Messiah would be from the lineage of David and would be this earthly figure. But what verse one that Jesus is quoting reveals is that the Messiah, that, that he was God. Like he was part of the God, the Godhood. And, and the Messiah wasn't human only, but that he was actually also divine. He wasn't only David's son, he was David's Lord. He's human and he's divine, like he's God. Does anybody in here like documentaries at all? Like, I love documentaries. And what I like most about documentaries is when they give you sort of like a behind the scenes view of something, right? When you get to like get backstage with the band and actually see how life is functioning behind the stage. And I sort of, I, I read this passage and see what's taking place and, and see that, that this is sort of like a behind the scenes view that we're getting in this passage. And you see in verse one where it says, Lord, like it says, Lord, the first time there in all caps, which is actually Yahweh God declaring something to Lord, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, right? Um, which is Adonai God. And so it's Yahweh God declaring to Adonai. And the Lord said to my Lord, and this is actually a foundational piece of what he's saying. And it answers why David called the Messiah who hadn't yet come his Messiah already, which is so strange to think about the way that David is referring to this Messiah. And the answer is because before David was, the Messiah was already, which is so crazy to think about. And the Messiah actually was already eternally as well. And Jesus actually sort of affirms this, this same idea later when he's talking to the same Pharisees and he says, before Abraham was born, Abraham, who came before David, he says, I am. In, in other words, I am. I am, I was. John 1, 1 and 2 uh, sort of reiterates this. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then you fast forward to verse 14 in John 1, and it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Psalm 110, this passage, is emphasizing like his divinity as God and his eternality, that he is forever. He always has been and he always will be. But it also emphasizes his authority, the Messiah's authority. Yahweh God calls Adonai to sit at what? His right, the right hand of his throne sit at his right hand. And this, this idea of the right hand sort of alludes to power, right? One scholar said that when a person of high rank puts someone on his right hand, he gave him equal honor and recognized them as possessing equal dignity and authority. In other words, their, their, their roles have been different, but the authority that they had was actually the same. And Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 28, later on when we get to this, where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, is what Jesus says, to me, which is just so, such a weird concept for the, the Jewish people to understand. So if you look ahead to Acts 7, we also see the first martyr in scripture, right? Stephen. And it says that Stephen, it says, full of the Holy Spirit, that he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, that Stephen got a glimpse of this, this, this idea of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And there's numerous references to to this God putting Jesus at his right hand in heaven. And you see all of this happening in Psalm 110, verse 1. And so if we're going to actually think properly about who the Messiah is, we have to recognize not only his humanity, that, that he was in the flesh, but we also recognize that he's divine, that he's God, and we also recognize that he has complete authority, that all of these things were spoken of, and all of these things were fulfilled in Jesus. This is an amazing thing. And then the last thing you see in this passage in Psalm 110 being referenced is actually his kingship. But who is Jesus the king of, is the question. And we can see all through scripture that he's the king of the Jews, right? That he's the king of the nations, that he's the king of kings, that he's the king of glory. Like, what does that even mean, right? That he's the king of glory. It means that he's like the most amazing, the most awesome, the the best of all kings. And then along with his humanity and his divinity, his authority, his kingship, we also see in Psalm 110, if you drop down a little further, that he's also a priest. Right? It says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he says that this Messiah will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time here either, but most of you are probably asking, like, who in the world is Melchizedek, right? He's one of the Bible's, like, most mysterious people. Uh, and, and, he, and yet he's very, very intriguing, right? One of the most important figures in Scripture, actually. And you only see him mentioned twice in the Old Testament. He shows up in Genesis chapter 14, and then he shows up here in Psalm 110 really briefly. And then you fast forward to the book of Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews literally spends three chapters talking about Melchizedek. And his name means king of righteousness. So listen, this is really interesting. His name means king of righteousness. Um, He was the king of Salem, which means peace, and and which eventually became Jerusalem, right? So he was the king of peace, and so he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace, uh, and in Genesis 14, he literally pops out of nowhere, and the scripture says that after Abraham defeats these kings, Melchizedek comes out to meet him, and what does Melchizedek bring Abraham? He brings him bread and wine, which is so interesting in light of Jesus' body broken for us and his blood being shed for us, right? And then it says that he blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives him a tenth of all his plunder. Like everything he just got in the battles he won, he gives a tenth of it back to Melchizedek. And then Melchizedek is referred to as the the priest of God most high. And the reason this is so cool is because priests couldn't be referred to as kings, and kings couldn't be referred to as priests. But yet, this guy is referred to as both, a king and a priest. And so, what was a priest at the time? A priest was literally a mediator, like a go-between between God and mankind. Like a priest would be the one that would broker your relationship with God for you. You go to the priest, he takes things to God for you. You offer your sacrifices, the, the priest would do the sacrifices for you, your sins would be forgiven on your behalf, but it all happened through this priest. And that's the role that Melchizedek plays with Abraham, like this king that served as a mediator. He literally stood between God and Abraham to bring God's blessing upon Abraham. And then he, he received these gifts from Abraham to present back to God, the tenth 
back to God. And so my question for you is like, as you kind of do all these gymnastics and read all of this, is who does this sound like as this picture is being painted for us? It sounds a ton like Jesus, doesn't it? Like this foreshadowing of Jesus for us. Like who else is, is the mediator in the storyline of God? And then you go to Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews says that Melchizedek served as this foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And so David, in Psalm 110, and the author of Hebrews are saying that this Messiah Jesus was not just a human priest like their Levitical priests that they were used to. He wasn't just a human priest, but that he was eternal, that he was a better high priest, that he's God in human flesh, that he's the only way that sinful people like you and I could draw near to God, and it's how God actually chose to draw near to us. What an amazing thing, through his son Jesus. And so listen to this, for, for us to sort of think correctly about this, about Jesus, we have to see Jesus as king of kings, and we have to see Jesus as our high priest the one who does the mediating for us. It's through Jesus. And Jesus goes on to finish Psalm 110, and he says, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet, which is also an interesting statement, right? Because King Jesus one day will rule. Like, he will be the king of kings, and he is the great high priest. But in this verse, you also see that he's also the future judge of the earth. So there's all these, rule, these roles that Jesus ends up playing, right? He's going to be the judge. A time is coming when his enemies will literally be put under his feet. They will be his footstool. Jesus will win. That day's coming. And as I was preparing for this this week, I had two groups of people in my mind. One was those who, who, who need to think of Jesus as more than just some great man. But God in the flesh, the king of kings, like a priestly mediator, the righteous judge. He's all these things, and maybe that's you. Maybe Jesus is asking you today, what do you think of the Christ? Like he's flipping the question on you. What do you think of him? Maybe your current perception of Jesus is actually keeping you from Jesus because you don't know the actual Jesus in his entirety, in his, in his totality. The second person is this. As I was also thinking about those who would agree with everything I said about Jesus and would sign off on it. But yet they aren't living in light of it. They can fill in the blanks. They can nod their heads at everything that I'm sharing from Psalm 110 and say, yes, I agree. Matthew 22, yes, I agree. But their heads and their hearts are actually at odds with one another. That their lives don't actually evidence what they claim to believe about Jesus Christ. Um, Jonathan Edwards the, the renowned Puritan, he said this, and I, and I think it's helpful in light of what we've been studying. He said, the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. And I think that he's right on in that statement. Like, how you think actually determines how you live, right? But how you live actually evidences what you truly believe. What you truly believe about God, like, who is he? In other words, like what, what we do spills out of who, um, uh, out of what we truly believe. Like it spills out of us. And that's true about what we believe about God. Like since Jesus is king, we should submit to him joyfully. 
But the question is, are we? Like, are we submitted to him as king? Is he actually our Lord? Is what we declare to be true of Jesus actually being demonstrated in our lives? And so the question that Jesus asked shuts these Pharisees up in a heartbeat, right? They've been coming at him back and forth, doing tag team for the last few questions. And verse 46 says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Why? Why? Why didn't they ask him any more questions? Because Jesus just made a point that they couldn't refute. You see, for the religious elite of Jesus' day, they thought they had all the answers. They thought they had everything figured out. They knew it all, but they finally had somebody who asked the right question, right? Somebody who knew that they had, uh, that they had all the knowledge, but yet they lacked the heart because the only thing that could make sense of what they were experiencing with Jesus was having their hearts actually engage what they were experiencing in him because otherwise it just did not make sense. And so often it goes the same for you and I. We love to have knowledge. We love to have facts. But sometimes we have the knowledge without our heart engaging in what it is that we actually know. And so as this passage progresses into into chapter 23, now you'll see how Jesus will respond to the crowds after he's shut up the Pharisees, right? At this point, Jesus has this captive audience around him because he's saying some pretty harsh things And there's a lot of people that are listening to what Jesus is saying, but he's directing it at the Pharisees, at the Sadducees, at those that were asking him the questions. But notice who it is that's listening in as Jesus begins to talk to the Pharisees, or about the Pharisees. Um, Who is it that's standing around that he's now going to direct his attention to? It says the crowds and the disciples. So now he's going to spend a bunch of time launching off these woes, And he's going to say some pretty harsh things to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees, to the hypocrites, to the religious elite. But the people he's talking to are actually you and I. They're the disciples and followers of Jesus. They're the people in the crowd. Have you ever been in a a situation in your life, maybe as a parent or maybe as a boss, or maybe some of you in this room are teachers, where you have a kid or employee or a student that seems like they know everything? Anybody you never dealt with that before? Me neither. You know, I'm glad we're all on the same page. But th- this person where th- they seem to think that they don't need you because they have the answers to everything, right? And is that not the most frustrating situation to get in? Where you think you know, but they're acting like they know better than you. And they're, you know, as you're telling them what to do, they're shutting you up because they think that they know what's best. And as I was thinking about this, this last week, thinking about even my own issues in engaging with my kids at times when they think that they know, and yet as a parent, you're like, no, but I actually know. You think you know, but I actually know. And I was thinking like, well, what's the worst problem than being the kid who thinks he knows everything? The worst problem is being the parent or the teacher or the boss that's actually convinced that you do know everything and you don't have anything to learn either. And these are the people that Jesus is, is dealing with. This passage sort of paints this picture for us of the, these religious leaders who have gotten in their way, who, who have allowed their positions and their titles and leadership status to, 
totally get the best of them. And so in Matthew 23, Jesus has received like some notoriety. Jesus has stirred up all of this controversy. This has been the sort of long drawn out saga that started all the way back in Matthew chapter three. And this is sort of the culmination of Jesus's interaction with these religious leaders. This is what's gonna get Jesus killed. And at this point, he's answered every question that they've given him. He's avoided all the traps that they've set. And so Jesus turns to the crowd to address these religious leaders, and he doesn't hold back. I mean, I'm going to start this this week. Next week, we're going to talk through this again. And the week after that, we're going to do this again. And the next three weeks are going to be these harsh words that Jesus just drills at these religious people. But you have to understand that there's crowds and disciples standing around listening to what Jesus is saying to these people, what he's directing at them. He says this, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. What's Jesus saying? He's talking about the seat of Moses, which was a literal chair found in the, the local synagogue. Like a teacher would sit on this chair, maybe as I'm doing this morning, <laughs> or the, the teacher would teach from it, or the teacher, the Pharisee, would act as a judge from that chair, and he would preside over court cases with regards to Jewish law from the seat within the synagogue. And these Pharisees, they were these self-appointed judges who took that seat. They, they sat in this position of authority over this local congregation in that synagogue, And Jesus is telling the people that because they're in the position they're in, they should be obeyed. Like, you should listen to them and and listen to the decisions that they make from that chair. However, he goes on to say, like, what they say is not actually in line with what they do. It's incongruent. Like, they, they, they often may judge others for violating the law, Yet the Pharisees would find their own little loopholes whenever it suited them, try to find their way to weasel out of things. The, the Pharisees were known to be these diligent people. They, were, they observed like rules for fasting, for washing, praying, studying, clothing, hair. They had all these rules and regulations in place from when they woke up until when they went to bed at night. They lived by this rabbinical code that they in fact helped to create And everybody looked to them as the epitome of piety. Like they were the best of the cream of the crop when it came to the religious. But Jesus goes on to say that their whole life was an act. They had devoted their whole lives to this thing and Jesus is saying they're actors. They're they're hypocrites. Like it was all an illusion so they could impress the people. And and when no one was watching, these people, these men, wouldn't bother doing the things that they told everyone that God demanded them to do. They didn't actually practice it in their own life. And so Jesus said they were saying one thing and then they're doing another, which is the definition of hypocrisy, right? And so Jesus goes on to say, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So what's a phylactery? If you guys have ever seen a phylactery before, it'd be like this little square box that 
the Jewish people would tie either to their foreheads or to their wrists. And it, they, they would put passages from Deuteronomy, uh, the Shema, in these little boxes, and they would tie them to their foreheads and to their wrists. And they literally got this from Deuteronomy chapter 6, that, that we're to carry the commands of God and bind them on our, on our hands and on our foreheads. And so they literally did that. So I'm going to pass these out when we're done this morning. And this next week, we're going to practice this, okay? We're going to get it right. We're going to take this literally. And then what are these fringes that he's talking about? Well, it's these things called a zitzit, which were these tassels that would hang down from their waist. And they would hang, these tassels would hang down, and they were supposed to represent the commandments of God. And so what is Jesus being critical about? The fact that their phylacteries are huge, and their tassels are long, and the statement that they're making to everybody else is, I'm more religious than you are. Like, I'm better than you because I've got this massive phylactery, right? And these long fringes. Like, try to beat me. You know what I mean? I'll, they'll just get longer, and the box will just get bigger. And so Jesus calls them out for this. But at the heart of, of these, these men, they wanted people to look at them and think, man, that guy must be devoted. He must be so serious about the Lord. Like back when I gave my life to Jesus, there was this movement in Coeur d'Alene. Some of you that have been around here long enough know about this. It's kind of like a Jesus people movement. It was a bunch of ragtag hippie kids giving their lives to Jesus, meeting in a building on 4th Street that we call The Building, and worshiping Jesus. It was drug addicts and skateboarders and people that had horrible backgrounds, like getting saved. It was this little revival and it was really neat to be a part of as I was growing up in the faith. And one of the things that I remember is that we would always leave these gatherings at the building and everybody had their Bibles in hand, right? And if your Bible was super marked up or it was worn out, it was like, dude, dude's been reading his Bible a lot, right? And so we would sit at Denny's at midnight with our Bibles open, and, you know, everybody would be smoking cigarettes and talking about Jesus, and it was just this, like, this really eclectic group of people. But I often think back on that and think about, like, how guilty we are at times of, like, did people see my Bible? Like, is it worn out? Like, what are the religious things we're doing in our life to try to convince people that we're more devoted than we actually are because we want to put off an aura like we love Jesus and so people have to see it. But in the meantime, we're protecting all the nasty stuff that's actually going on in the inside of us and that doesn't seem very authentic. It doesn't seem like the way that Jesus is teaching us. And so what Jesus is addressing is this people who think that their role or their position places them above the people that are around them. Like they've leveled up. Nobody can attain where I'm at because I've leveled up. Have you ever heard of a poser? Like they're the epitome of a poser. Like they look the part, they wear the garb, but their actions don't match. Their words don't match their dress. Nothing. There's a disconnect. And this is such a gnarly ideology to think about. Like, think about how this ideology has wreaked havoc in our society over history. Think about it. Like, giving pastors too much authority, giving pastors too much notoriety, allowing your position, your title, your clout 
in the church to actually dictate how religious or how devoted of a person to Jesus you are. And then Jesus comes in and he's nailing the nail on the head and basically saying like his kingdom doesn't elevate people based on their piety and their religiosity. Like that's not his kingdom. Jesus doesn't play favorites with those who know the most and have the greatest testimony. To Jesus, it was all about the heart. It's all about acting on what you know. It's all about the outside matching the inside. There's something special about the person that's actually transparent enough that there's no hidden parts of their life. Like what you see is what you get. We would all say that's very refreshing to meet people like that because we know so many people that are so guarded. Now, what would Jesus' response be to the Pharisees if at this point they came forward and they said, and I want you to think about this, what if the Pharisees, upon hearing Jesus say this, they came forward and they said, you know what, Jesus, you're right. You're, you're right. Our lives are incongruent with what we preach. And I think that's where the gospel had the power to step in. Grace, forgiveness, another chance. But that's not their response. Their response is to guard and protect and continue to try to protect their position, their notoriety. And unfortunately, the, the Pharisees and the religious, they continue to act. They continue to become hardened. They won't allow the spirit to actually break in and convict them and, and bring them to a place of healing. And so instead, they'll continue to stand on their own righteous and they'll their own righteousness, and they'll continue to seek the applause of men. And he goes on to say, verse 6, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in, market, in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Like, they just love to be put first and they love to be served and they love to be called by their title rabbi. For them, it was all about role. It's all about title. It's all about being served by others. And Jesus, in front of all of these religious people, cues in on his followers. And this is what he says. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers, meaning you are all equal. There's not one elevated from another. You are all equal. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. And then he says, the clincher, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. This is the kingdom life that Jesus has called us to, church. This is it. But this was not the lives of the religious elite of Jesus' day. Like, what is Jesus' main point here? His main point is this. You need to follow my lead. Don't follow the practice of those guys. You're to actually serve. You're to become less than. You're to actually make my name great, not for the applause and for the recognition of others because Jesus' burden is light and his yoke is easy. Your call isn't to add great burdens to people like they do. You're called to actually bring people to me that their loads would be lightened. And those who lead do so for me, to bring glory to him, not to themselves, not to make much of their own glory. That's why this is so critical. And I want you to take a moment and, and think about this world. I mean, we literally have the best illustration of this playing out before us with Russia and Ukraine. We're watching this firsthand. You have a leader who just wants control, a leader who, who, who will do whatever he has to 
to whomever he has to for whatever price in order to get what he wants. And that trickles down, right? That impacts all of us. We all struggle with this at some point in time. The ironic thing is that we look at the world and oftentimes we'll think, yeah, I'd expect that out there. I'd expect it from people that don't know Jesus. And the assumption then is that somebody who knows Jesus would never actually act in this way. Or because we're actually in the church and doing the church things and following through with our tasks, that we're somehow guarded from this trap. But let me suggest to us this morning that the trap is more prevalent in religious circles than anywhere else. Because we often use the God card to get us what we want, when we want, how we want. And the people Jesus is calling out are the ones who are the most devoted religious people of Jesus' day. But again, who's standing around listening to what Jesus is saying? It's us. It's you and me. It's disciples of Jesus. And why in the world did they need to be exposed to this conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees and Sadducees? Because Jesus knew that the trap wouldn't stop with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He knew that his followers, in fact, some from within even his inner circle, are actually going to fall prey to the same trap just days away from this very moment that Jesus is speaking these words. And this whole trap of elevating ourselves or this trap of giving the people the show that they want in order to protect what's actually going on inside of us. And this we have to prayerfully seek Jesus about, church. That we don't become hypocrites. That that we don't elevate ourselves because of what we know, who we know, or what our title or our position is. That we don't try to convince people that things are actually amazing, that we've got everything figured out when on the inside we're struggling And we're actually far from God, but yet we're maintaining the show. And how tiring is that life? And so this morning, like as we close in worship, I want you to contemplate your heart. It's easy for us to point the finger and be like, yeah, they're dumb. You know, like how stupid could they be? The reality is is I have the same junk going on in me. This last week, like not to overshare, but I had this sort of panic attack last week in the middle of the night. And it scared the living daylights out of me. And what I realized is that I can very well maintain face and convince people that I'm doing okay. But my body says otherwise. And sometimes we're stressed out. Sometimes there's more going on in us than we would ever let people know. And this whole kingdom lifestyle is a lifestyle of the inside matching the out. And us not being ashamed of that, us actually being a church that would celebrate that, that there's broken people in this room, that you don't have to maintain face and try to act like you have it together, that we serve a Jesus that accepts us as we are, and in fact, coming to him as you are is better than coming to him as somebody you wish you were. This morning, like, I think he's calling us out. But in the most loving and joyful way to say, like, take a deep breath. Stop trying to save face. He's given us brothers and sisters in this amazing church, in this amazing city, to actually walk with, to celebrate the fact that we are broken people and we haven't got it figured out, but we desperately want to cling on to Jesus and the ones he's placed around us in order to walk with him wholly to the end of our days. Amen?
Can I pray for us? Would you guys stand? Jesus, uh, the reality this morning is that, and it sounds so ironic, God, that we can try so hard to put on a really good show. Yet we know that you see the depths of our hearts. So who are we trying to convince? And I pray this morning, Jesus, as this word sort of like drops on our hearts this morning, that your spirit would do the hard work of actually lodging it deep within us, that we would feel it, that we would look, analyze, and, and look at our own life and say, does the inside match the out? Is what I, does what I believe about who Jesus is, is it actually evidenced in the way I live my life? Are there things I'm hiding that I no longer need to carry anymore because I can be a broken person desperately in need of Jesus to repair what's been broken? And that's okay because we're all broken people. And so I pray this morning, Jesus, as we close this time in worship, we really do come to give you praise and honor. We come to give you praise and honor for the fact that you take jacked up, broken, messed up things and you make them new, Jesus. And so we serve this God this God that is so big that he's able to transcend all our broken pieces and all the junk in our life in order to renew us and to make us whole, to make us these, these, these whole people that can walk with you, Jesus, in all of life and stop hiding, stop hiding behind it, Jesus. I pray against just a religious spirit. I pray against the, the, the stuff that the culture throws out at us these days, like us needing title and notoriety and fame and all these things, God. I pray that that would be washed away within your church, that we'd all look as, as though we are equal, that we're all, the, the ground is level as the, at the foot of the cross. And as we come before you this morning, Jesus, we're just asking you to take what you know of us, Jesus, who we are, even our broken parts, and to make us whole, to renew us and to redeem us and then that in and of itself, there's just a ton to rejoice about this morning. And so as we sing these songs and we give glory to you, Jesus, we do that because of who you are, King Jesus, our priest, our judge, our Messiah. We give everything to you, Jesus, and I pray that your church would just come alive in this season, God as we lay down these burdens and we cling on to you in Jesus' name.